0: So uh, a week and a half ago, my wife and I decided to uh, visit our alma mater. We graduated from McKendry College, which is now McKendree University, in uh, 2002, making me old. And um, it was cool being, I played college football, so it was cool. Uh, we went to a football game and, you know, seeing the field and the now up- upgraded turf and getting to see some old friends. And then in the distance, uh, I saw him. Um, my coach, and many of you guys who have experienced sports of some kind, most of you are like, you have this image of your coaches as this legendary character, you know, and some of you who are maybe in cheerleading or ballet, maybe you have kind of the same experience. Um, I I grew up in a, and where my sisters were cheerleaders, and so they would always argue that cheerleading is a sport, so we'll go with it tonight by God's grace. But anyway, um, so I saw my coach in the distance, and so I I turned to Heidi, I'm like, look, it's Coach Pelker. And, uh, and so she's like, go say hi to him. Now, my coach is just this stud, beefy, legendary dude. So I go down to him, and he, the moment he sees me, he, uh, let me, well, let me uh, frame this reference. Um, every other word or so that comes out of Coach Pelker's mouth, let's, how would we describe it? Um, it's not very, uh, like, you wouldn't find those words in the Bible. Let's just say it that way, okay? Like, he has very, a colorful language, Okay. Um, so I see him and he's like, you know, Sigma and he, you know, he starts explicit explicitive, explicit and then he, then right away he brings up this one play where, uh, we were playing St. Xavier tied six to six and I was the holder and it was pouring down rain and our field goal snapper snapped it into the ground and I like reached up and grabbed it and got it on and we won. And he's like, dude, I'll forever remember that hold, you know? And I'm like the holder, like in all of his glory, you know? Anyway. So uh, right away, uh, Coach Pilker and I started talking about the thing that united us when I played, and that was uh, a very special coach to both of us. You see, uh, there was a friend of his who uh, was a high school coach and was reaching to pick up a uh, a cone on the ground, and a player ran a route into him and pushed his neck into the ground and uh, confined him as a paraplegic to a wheelchair the rest of his life. And uh, my coach brought him on as one of our uh, college coaches. And so I'll still remember the day when this guy was on his, like, motorized wheelchair coming down to the football field, and I was like, Coach Poker, who's this guy? And he's like, Mark, he's your new quarterback coach. Well, here's a picture of um, Coach Hood. That's me on the far right, bald and very (laughs) young-looking, in the the classic matching red shorts. Um, (laughs) I'm actually quoted uh, uh, on this particular newspaper article. That's Coach Hood there, and what I said about him and one of the things that I loved about him most is somehow, uh, from a wheelchair, he empowered us. Like, he, he got, and my quote is, he got me to do things on the football field I never thought I could do before. It, the thing that made him who he was was how empowering he was, how much better he made you. Um, it was crazy. And so, like, me and Coach Pelker, you're, a week and a half, like, we're, like, tearing up. And this, like, big, burly man. One last thing about Coach Pelker is he, he, he chewed tobacco a lot. And so whenever he would yell at you, you would like, like you would ha- just be shrapnel on your face. There would be enough on your face where you could collect it and then like put a dip in your own mouth. You know, like that's, that's how much. <laughs> and his, his teeth were wearing down to the nubs in the front when I graduated in 2002. So when I saw him, I was really curious, like what, what, what was he looking? And there, were, there was like, there was just like gums, you know. So this guy and me, over how much Coach Hood empowered us, he passed away three or four years ago. We were both like tearing up there like me and my football coach. And um, as I've been preparing for tonight, I was thinking about this story because I'm so incredibly grateful that God didn't save me and then um, say good luck. I-, I just wanna collectively like have a moment together and to say we serve a God who hasn't breathed life into us and then say, hey, listen, I've done my job, now I wish you well. We serve a God who is the definition of empowerment. We serve a God who, in his grace, saved us, and in his mercy, empowers us. And tonight, we get a chance to look at truly an unbelievable story. In Exodus 31, I know some of you are, have grown weary of the cubits and the gold and all of the measurements. Uh, tonight, we get some narrative Okay, so it'll really excite uh, some of you guys. So all of that said, let's watch how God empowers his people in Exodus chapter 31. So turn there in your Bibles or your phones um, or, I mean, your cardinal scorekeeper, your phone. Uh, If you can turn there, that'd be great. The Lord will convict you every time you look at ESPN, I promise. Exodus chapter 31. So what's happened so far is God has uh, instructed his people on uh, what they're to build and how they're to build it in the tabernacle. He's also given instructions on what the priests are to wear and what their service is to be like. And then he begins some beautiful dialogue here in Exodus 31, uh, verse 1. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, and remember, this is a really long conversation. It's happened on the top of Mount Sinai. It's been going on for chapters. Moses is probably growing weary. Okay, he's old anyway. Verse 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel. The son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, take note of that. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, interesting, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. This is a really powerful series of five verses. Let's begin here. I did some study on uh, the uh, growing and building of the arch. Have you guys ever studied that? Uh, so when I study, I always turn to Wikipedia uh, because they are the source of all knowledge and wisdom. So I got on Wikipedia. Did you guys know that, um, that the whole arch project really began in 1933? A group of folks were like, look, we need to do something with this land. Now the arch wasn't yet thought of, but like let's, let's do something with this land what happened is then tons of fundraising and grants and congressmen got involved and President Roosevelt got involved. I think that was the president. Abraham Lincoln was there. Um, and people like there were all kinds of factors. And so then in the late 40s, they finally make the design of the arch. Okay. All this work, all this time. Well, from 1930s and then finally in the mid to late 60s is when the arch was actually built. Right. So imagine this. All the fundraising, all the architects, all the design, all the con—like everything—and then on day one of breaking ground, I show up with a hammer. And the architects like, hey, "Hey, who's that guy?" And the other guy's like, "Oh, he's 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 the guy building the he's the guy building the arch, like me with my hammer." You know what I'm saying? But if you don't know anything about me, let me fill you in. Okay, I'm the least handy person ever, right? Like I, I don't I don't even know where I would begin with building the wood arch, you know, I don't even know how it, that was kind of a joke because it wasn't built of wood, (laughs) it's fine, we'll get it later, Um, (laughs) listen though, listen, as ludicrous as that sounds, that I would show up and the most ill-equipped person start going to work, uh, that's the rhythm that our God is in, Uh, choosing those who are seemingly ill-equipped, not ready, and to show his own glory, saying, I'm going to use you, though you have not a clue of what you're doing, for my glory. Now, I'm not saying uh, that this man, I'm not saying that he doesn't have uh, have a clue in craftsmanship or intelligence or gold fashioning. I'm not saying that at all. But what the word makes clear is that God, with the filling of the Holy Spirit, takes maybe some of the gifts he already has and he escalates them big time, okay? So that's what we got going on here. We got a man empowered by God to build this tabernacle, to fashion it together. And what the scripture says is that he's from the tribe of what? Come on, tribe of Judah. This is really, really interesting on two facets. The first facet is, uh, someone else importante in the scripture comes from the line of Judah. Secondly, listen to this. who actually gets to go in the tabernacle, the tribe of who? Levi. Does it seem interesting to anyone else that God would choose a man? and then later we're going to see another man from the, the line of, of Dan. God chooses a man from the tribe of Judah to build the tabernacle, and once the tabernacle is consecrated, he can't even go in himself. So God chooses a man to build a tabernacle that he won't even get to benefit from seeing the fullness of the fruits of his labor. In other words, God calls him to do something that in the end, he's not even going to get to see all the fruits of what it is. And then I started thinking about the beauty of that moment, and oh my goodness. I started realizing, like, this is exactly, exactly the call in our life. We don't see it as such. Because where you and I are most often is we want to serve. We want to be empowered by God when there's quick, easy, seeable, visible fruit. And if there's not, we get quickly frustrated. We get angry. We want to see results now. Like in this situation, some of you guys will be like, heck no. I'm not going to build something and then are not going to get to go in like a few days later, snap some pictures, you know, like put my hands around the Ark of the Covenant. Like, no, like I want to be in there. You would get frustrated. And so what happens then is it shows all of us very quickly where our heart is. Are we more interested in our glory or his? Our glory wants quick results where people see us serving and then they congratulate us on our humble service. When it's about his glory, we're okay being used in whatever situation, in whatever theme, empowered by him, no matter if the fruit is ever seen or experienced by us at all. So to help put some meat and potatoes on this, here's, here's what I want to show you. Here's some instances where we're being used, but, but sometimes we don't see the fruit. First one, let's start out really easy, living with self-control. So you and uh, your lady friend... Uh, on a date, um, decide to watch a movie. What's a popular movie on Netflix or something right now? Shark, you're, you're like, Sharknado is your. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, you start realizing because your heart. your heart's starting to get lustful. You start realizing that really what you want in this moment is some pleasure. Listen to this. And then all of a sudden, convicted by God, you stop. Exhibit self-control. Desire his glory over yours. You will never know the fruit and the power of that moment. Uh, For a guy, think about this. If the girl, let's say, was a virgin the fruit and the power of God overwhelming you with self-control, when that could have been, right? The the night that, man, she had been ready and and waiting and holding out for marriage, and then in your pleasure and your lust and your kind, nice words of telling her this and that, then all of a sudden, right? You'll never know the fruit of self-control years and years later in her marriage when on that night, it was kept pure, I'm not even just talking about a, a, vir, a virginity, right? I mean, just whatever the case, sexually, you'll never see the fruit. Um, it's really tough to understand uh, how your decisions in seemingly unimportant moments affect years and years and years down the road. That's why it's better to actually look at your poor decisions and see how, how many people have been affected. Let's just take maybe one of your gravest sins, and you're going to start listing all the people that were affected by it. Think of the power of self-control and the fruit that you never see. My point is this. If you want fruit visible right now, then you'll be less apt to live a life of self-control. See what I'm saying? Because you can't see the longevity of it. You're more interested in your pleasure or your pursuits or your happiness now then you are fruit for the security of hearts 10 years down the road. Next, let's uh, keep adding on to this. Living a life of love, intentionally engaging others. I, I don't mean to be a trite in all this, but you guys are in grocery stores, okay, sometimes with like a nickel, right? You're like, what can I buy with a nickel? <laughs> a dumb, dumb sucker, again, okay, I guess that's dinner, um, you're in a grocery store. And uh, I give this scenario a lot because I see it all the time. You start talking to the cashier. You have a conversation with the elderly person in the, the aisle. Right? That elderly person believed that the youth of America were damning everyone else to hell. Right? And you took five minutes and cared and listened and helped her get something off the top shelf. Like you'll never know the conversation that she has later, right? Or even how she sees her grandkids and and her grandkids' friends. Like the fruit of living an intentional life of love, not for your own glory or for your own self, but for others. Guys, it's unbelievable. So here's the problem, right? If all you want is visible fruit now, then you're missing what God is doing because you're more interested in your perspective and I would say this, in your sovereignty than you are and how God could use three, four, five seconds of your life to bring himself glory. Okay, let's keep going. Number three. Meeting the physical needs of others. Uh, Jesus had a bit of a leg up. He was the savior. And um, (laughs) he could raise people from the dead, okay? So let's just take Lazarus, for instance. Jairus' daughter, another. Uh, They have a very Stark physical need Jesus swoops in He says You're not dead anymore Okay Um, So meeting the physical needs Of others Like his fruit Is very very clear It's easy to see Like he rocked it Okay Um, uh, We're we're coming into a weekend Where we're gonna supply A whole bunch of folks In our city A a coat And I had the pleasure today Of talking with a family uh, Here in our city And my family's gonna be um, Getting the chance To love on them Here's her story Uh Going through a divorce, I I heard in the the voice of a mother uh, the pain of her saying the divorce is horrible, and my three oldest kids um, have distanced themselves from me, even though it was really Dad's fault. Basically, is what she was saying, and I was like, so how often are they with you? Not often. They decide to stay. Like I was just I was hearing, and so what are we gonna do? She's like, hey, uh, she said this, hey, can I just come over to your house on Saturday to get the coats? I was like, can you come over? I was like, yes and please, you know? So I'm gonna get the chance on Saturday morning to have this person I've never met sit in my living room and I'm gonna meet a physical need. I'm gonna hand her some coats for her kids and I'm gonna get the chance to listen, to not take my Bible and start smacking her on the chin, you know, and hoping that the gospel like, you know, works through her membranes I'm gonna get the chance to sit and listen to her heart. Listen, I will never have any conceptualization of the impact of those moments. I don't know. But do you see the power of them? If I'm interested in results, if I want salvation now, right? And it's not that, it's not about my wants. Like, of course I want her to come to Christ, knowing that that's the fullness of a restoration. But God, do whatever you wanna do, God. I'm just gonna be obedient, right? Lastly, some of you guys will be future parents. Uh, so I think this... We'll speak to you one random night of listening to your kids. Let's talk on the other side. Um, some of you guys had parents that never listened to you, ever. Let's just talk about a dad, for instance. Some of you guys had a dad. He acted kind of interested, and he would go to your events. But when you needed him there to, like, talk you through a breakup or to work through the decision to go to college, like, he was, just, he was nowhere to be found or on his phone or watching TV, distant. We will never, ever, ever know what these seemingly random moments are with our kids. My son, uh, Dawson, went on a field trip today, and it's awesome. He goes on his first pumpkin field trip. He's never been on the bus before, okay? And so he comes here tonight, and it's like 5.45, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like getting ready for go time. And my son is so excited to tell me about the bus, you know? And listen, if I don't take those seconds to listen to him and to encourage him, And all my kids come in after the first service, and they just want to hug on me and love on me. And if I, like, pass them away because I'm talking to someone, I was talking to someone, and I said, excuse me. And I sat down, and I just held my kids. Like, I'll never know the fruit of those moments. You guys see what I'm saying? I get it wrong a whole bunch. But I'm saying the moments that we can get it right, not seeing the greater perspective. Like, God calls this dude to build the tabernacle, and he's never even going to see like the fullness of the holy of holies. But somehow, he finds himself okay with it. So what I want to ask you is, are you okay with it? Are you okay with God empowering you to be used for his glory, even if you never see one iota of fruit in those around you? His ways are greater than yours. There's no way you can understand the situations and how God is using them. What I see in Christendom is we want quick results. We're consumeristic in our service. And so when all of those stars align, when it's going to mean we get some gratitude, when it's going to be easy, when it's not going to require much time or sacrifice, then we will serve. We'll post some pictures on Instagram of all the church people serving, and then we'll walk away. Well, what about the hours and the hours and the hours of just genuine, pure motive love? And 20 years down the line, that person says, in his testimony, hey, 20 years ago, I was sitting in this random living room of this crazy, like this thing called Lot family. It sounded like a cult, you know, and they offered me Kool-Aid, and I got weirded out, But, but somehow amidst those conversations, I still look back 20 years later and I remember what that one person said. And it deeply impacted, like we just do not know. The power of what God does in his sovereignty for his glory is astounding and it's right now blowing my mind again. So that's what self-sacrifice, God do whatever you want to do kind of life looks like. Are we together here? That's what is happening right here. But But the fruit or the meat of this text, we haven't even started on. Uh, Flip back to uh, verse five for me, or the one through five. Look at this. So this dude, verse three says, he's filled with what? The spirit of God. Hello. Like, as for me in my house, I grew up thinking that the Holy Spirit was only in the New Testament. Anybody else? And I thought the Holy Spirit was only connected to like speaking in tongues and tambourines and dancing girls and stuff, right? Like, that's kind of what I thought, all right? Well, the problem is, In the beginning, the the first word for God is Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. Uh, For those of you guys who know Genesis 1, you know that God's what? Hovered over the waters. God's what? Come on. His Spirit hovered over the waters. In other words, sin didn't happen, and then God was like, oh, no, I need a Son, and I need a Spirit so the Christians can write a triangle, right? Like, no. God was Father, God was Son, and God was Spirit from the beginning, Now, how the Spirit is used and reveal itself is a little bit different in the Old Testament. So let's take a quick journey. Because if this scripture in the Old Testament says that this dude is filled with the Spirit of God, then we better understand how that's possible. Well, here's what Micah says. Check this out. Micah 3. But as for me, I am filled with power. Here's what Micah says. Old Testament, with the Spirit of the Lord. Micah's comparing himself with the false prophets of the day, and he says he unlike them is filled with the Spirit of of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. That's who Micah was. He was proclaiming to Israel their sin. And he says, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. Micah might not interest you because you've never heard of him before, but how about David? Check this out. Cast me not away from your presence in his famous psalm, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David. So somehow like David had this understanding that That God's spirit, he had access to. In his last words in 2 Samuel, here's what David says. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Look at this. The spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. David not just recognizes that he doesn't want the spirit to leave him, but actually the spirit is influential in him. So what's the difference then between Old Testament Holy Spirit and New Testament Holy Spirit? Fire the laser on Acts 2. And they were all, here's what Scripture said, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In John chapter 1, verse 33, Jesus says that he's going to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Later, he says, unless I go, the Holy Spirit can't come. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is a good thing. That's my point. And he says that he's going to baptize believers with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so here's what happens. I come to Christ. I start relationship with Jesus. I believe that God sent his son, that his son died, that his son raised, and because of his son's sacrifice, I can have relationship with God. I confess then that I believe in God. At that moment of salvation... God, the scripture says, seals me as a believer with the Holy Spirit, baptizes me. Baptizo is the John one thirty three text. Immerses me with the Spirit, seals me, gives that to me. So different than David, different than Micah, different than our builder in Exodus 31, every believer in the new covenant who calls on the name of the Lord is given the Spirit of God who now resides in them. And this is the thing that really trips non-believers out, right? And if you're a non-believer here, hang with us. Because you're like, so are you saying God lives in you? Yeah, pretty much, you know? And it's awesome, right? Well, you're like, How does that work, you know? Oh, yeah, I read that one book that one time by Max Lucado that says he fills my God-shaped hole in my heart. Is that what you mean? Yeah, pretty much, actually, you know? Like... <laughs> now, here's what I want to make sure you understand. We believe here at Matthias. Not once saved, always saved, but if saved, always saved. In other words, in genuine salvation, God will give me his spirit. God does not take that spirit away. He does not call me a son and then later kick me to the curb calling me an orphan. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? That's why the scripture says we're sealed with the spirit. Sealed. It's not a Ziploc bag. I mean, it's like way better than that. We're sealed. With the Spirit. So once we're sealed with the Spirit, sons and the heirs, we don't then become orphans. Here's my point in all of this. Okay, When Stephen is stoned in Acts 7, the scripture says that he's filled with the Spirit. In Acts 13, we see this. Next slide. In Acts 13, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Well, hold on a second. They, they're already, they already have the Holy Spirit. So why does the scripture say here filled? For the same reason that we see are artisan in Exodus 31. The filling of the Holy Spirit is different than the baptism. Hang with me here. Some of you guys grew up with some different understandings of this. Some of you have heard that, hey, hey have you been baptized in the Spirit? And you're like, I, what do you mean? Well, you know, have you spoken in tongues? That's not what baptism in the Spirit means. To be baptized or immersed in the Spirit, John 1.33, means that God gives you His Spirit at salvation. To be filled with the Spirit... Stephen in Estonia in Acts 7, Acts 13, even back in, in Exodus 31, is a sudden, for lack of a better term, rush of God's Spirit where he is empowering his people for an action. In Acts 2, it's to speak in tongues so that those outside the house could hear. And many of you guys know, a whole bunch of people came to Christ that day. In Acts 13, in this situation, they're preaching the gospel beginning to the Gentiles. And so they're filled with the Spirit... In a, as it were, a rush of the Spirit so they could communicate the gospel. My point is, in the Old Testament, God, at his discernment, blesses his followers at times and his discretion with the Spirit of God. Fills them with the Spirit for action. Does that make sense? In the New Covenant, any believer, any believer has the Holy Spirit in them. In the Old Testament, in God's discretion, in God's timing, he would bless does that make sense, everyone? Okay. All right, let's keep going here. Let's uh, pick up here in verse 6. We see another dude, his compadre. And behold, is that right? Compadre, is that friend in Spanish? Amigo. And behold, I have appointed with him, Ohailaab, the son of um, uh, Ahishmach, of the tribe of, look at this, Dan. Okay, really technical. It was a, a tribe. How many of you guys named Dan here? Okay. Any Dans in the room? No Dans. Are you, are you kidding me? That's not true. There we go. We got a Dan. <laughs> Was your name from this tribe, Dan? You have no idea. Just go with it right now, man. Now's the time just to go with it. From the tribe of Dan, I am in the line of those who built the tabernacle. Here we go. And I have given to all able men ability that they may take all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is in it, and all the furnishings of the tent, verse 8, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all of its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, all these things we study studied with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely woven garments, the holy garments of Aaron, the priests, and the garments of his son, for the service of priests, verse 11, look, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. She says, all right. I'm going to empower you guys to build this tabernacle. Here's what happens. In Exodus chapter 39, we have this unbelievable moment where Moses comes and inspects it. And he starts walking around, you know, he starts like walking around, and he's, all the cubits are going on in his mind. And what Moses recognizes in Exodus 39 is it was built exactly how God had commanded. So apparently these men, empowered by God, serve the Lord down to the nth measurement. Why? And to what end? And for what reason? Let's keep going. I think our questions will be answered. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel, look at this, and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. Well, randomly the Sabbath comes back up. Does this not seem strange to anyone? Like as I'm reading this in my own study, I'm like, seriously? We've already studied the Sabbath in Exodus 20, the 10 words of the 10 commandments. We saw later him reiterating the Sabbath. And just before the 10 commandments, we saw another reiteration of the Sabbath. Three times so far in Exodus. And here we go again. What's his point? Verse 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Here's what he's saying. I've commanded you to build the tabernacle. I've given you the men to build it. I've told you how to build it, down to the cubit. I've even provided the means to build it. You walked out of Egypt, I told you to get some gold, bronze, and silver. I've done it all. But that still does not negate the need for you to take the Sabbath. In other words, just because I'm I'm commissioning you to a building project or my service, there aren't exemptions uh, for you to go ahead and work on the Sabbath. I have instituted the Sabbath. In other words, God's word is God's word. There's no exemptions. Uh, Did you know that about his word? Like his word doesn't say, uh, hey, um," and you shouldn't be angry, except when... Someone really, you know, tees you off, or when this person doesn't, you know, they, they kind of when this person's abusive to you, or when this situation happens. No, what does the scripture, like? What does the scripture say? Love God and love people. Those are the two greatest commandments, Matthew twenty-two. So, uh, except when that person doesn't love you back, or except when you know they did something really harmful to you. There are no exemption clauses to God's word. So I love the reiteration here. I'm commanding you to a building project. But listen, you will rest on the seventh day. I don't want this building built more than I want you in right rhythm is what God's saying. Why? He's showing the importance of remembrance. If you work through the seventh day, then you'll start thinking this building project is about you. You'll start looking at the worth of the work of your hands And you'll start thinking that apart from me, you're actually worth something. Well, the rhythm of the Sabbath is we're remembering that we were slaves and now we're not. And and why is that? Because God brought us. And we're remembering that if we don't do a darn thing for one day, God still holds the universe in his palm. So the rhythm of remembrance is this reoccurring theme of not me, but him. Not for my glory, but his. Not by my empowerment, but through him. Oh, so I feel like it's necessary to ask, where right now, in God's word, are you adding ex- like exemption clauses? I know his word says this, but I know his word says to not be equal, unequally yoked with a non-believer, but I mean, he kind of, like he says Jesus every once in a while in a cuss word. Does that count? Is he a Is he a believer? Or I know the word says that we, you know, shouldn't partake in sexual morality, but I mean, come on, it can't be that serious of a instance. I know the word says like drunkenness is kind of that we should probably negate that, but I mean, one or two times just for fun. I mean, it's my twenty first. Come on, there are no exemption clauses in the word. God is gracious on your sin, but it's not because you made an exemption. It's because he made a sacrifice. In other words, he doesn't coddle you and say, I understand, I know why you made that exemption. He says, I've made a sacrifice. So receive my grace, repent and turn from it. You guys guys understand? Okay, this is the power of the gospel, right? Now, here's how important Sabbaths are to him. Check this out, verse 14 you shall keep the sabbath because it is holy for you everyone who profanes it shall be put to death he gone you know everyone who does this they die whoever does any whoever does any work on it that soul shall be caught, cut off from among his people I'm going to institute this and make sure everyone understands this to this point. Uh, of, of verse 15, six days shall be work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be, in case you didn't hear it the first time, put to death. Getting this rhythm of remembrance, so indoctrinating in this people. Verse 16, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant. Forever, this is gonna be a reminder of the covenant, a rhythm of remembrance. Verse 17, it is a sign forever, look at this, between me and you and the people of Israel. This is getting ready to blow your mind. Check this out, that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the Sabbath day, he, God, rested and what? And was what? Refreshed. Did you guys get that? Listen, I've taught the Sabbath like for years and years and years of my life because of our rhythm and model here at Matthias. I have never seen this verse before. That God on the seventh day, again, I can't make this like the word refreshing in Hebrew means refresh. Like I can't make it say something else. God was refreshed in his, rest, in his resting. And so why in the world then would we think that we're higher, have more aptitude, have more energy, have more wherewithal than God. We sure believe that at times, though, don't we? Come on. Uh, do you guys ever get triharditis? You know? <laughs> it's like eat. You- the worst mono you can ever get, right? Where all of a sudden, everything in your life is just, if I work harder, if I do more, if I try my darndest, like surely we'll plow through, right? The Sabbath is so quintessential to the Lord. He says, anyone who breaks it dies. Verse 18 is so beautiful. If you've completely been zoning out or watching the Cardinal game, please see this. And he gave to Moses, verse 18, when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, just get a picture of this in your dome—the two tablets of the testimony. <laughs> so the conversation's over. God drops the mic, right? And like all of a sudden, there's tablets. <laughs> like imagine like what this looks like, you know? It's like you know, like these tablets, or like they just, like come out of the earth, right? I mean, it's just kind of a a weird, cool, awesome moment between the intimacy of God and Moses. He provides the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, and look at this, written with the finger of God. Moses and God have this unbelievable conversation that began, that began chapters and chapters and chapters ago with the construction of the tabernacle. And if you're looking ahead, what happens is Moses goes down with these tablets, and things aren't going so well. Okay. So I stepped away from these two uh, series of texts, and I realized this. Growing up, and I would even say until last week, I thought that the Spirit was only synonymous with momentum, with fury, with energy. In other words, like when you say, man, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, or I can feel the Holy Spirit, what what do you mean when you say that? My guess is you mean that you're like, you know, you're kind of like, you've had like one too many pixie sticks or something, right? Like you're like, like you're feeling on edge, like you're feeling passionate, like you're, you're, you've associated it with some sort of a feeling or, or, or power. And some of those things are very true, right, and biblical. I mean, this, uh, the, the scripture says that we are not given a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of sound mind. So some of those things are very legitimate and real. But what I realize is I've really only attributed the spirit of God with, like, tremendous momentum or progress or, or we would say fire. Um I started this, uh, and please forgive me for this. <laughs> this is kind of like a moment of confession, like a pa- confession of pastors. Um, but I started this service when I was in college. I was a youth pastor and leader of a campus ministry. And we called it, we called it Sunday Night Extreme. I'm really... <laughs> <laughs> and it even had like the X, you know, X T R I We had T-shirts, I mean... It would, And then at this service, I, I was weird and still am, but I, I started saying this phrase that I'm about to share with you, and I'm really sorry that I ever said this in my life. But I would say a Holy Spirit, uh, fatty lovin', mama Yahtzee was my phrase, okay? I can't make this stuff up. can't make this stuff up. What happened is, after a few weeks... After a few weeks, a youth group that was coming to this thing showed up with T-shirts that said, God is fatty loving, okay? <laughs> and like, you know, a memoir of all this. But what my statement was saying was that the Holy Spirit was only like fury, was only passion, was only fire. I mean, its origination, uh, as it were in the New Testament, it seems, and acts is, is like tongues of fire. So that was all that I thought of. But I want to ask you this question. Next slide. How does the Holy Spirit guide us into rest? Now, here's what Galatians 5 says. This is at the end. If we live by the Spirit, let us also, the scripture says, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. What Paul is saying, empowered by the Spirit of God, we are to keep in step, in rhythm, and pace. With the Spirit of God that's empowering us, enabling us, convicting us, guiding us, what John says, into all truth. Check this out. Here's how this story begins in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Somebody, in other words, there's not two options. There's not two worlds. There's not one foot in and one foot out. When you walk in step with the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, the desires of the flesh don't even seem desirable. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The exemptions are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you are to do. But, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're freed by the grace of Christ. Please see this, verse 19. Now, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and my favorite part, things like these, right? It's like in a a grab bag full of other things. Okay. The most unrest in your life has been in those things. Think about it. The periods of your life with the most unrest, listen, have been as a non-believer or a believer when you were running from God and the run got incredibly exhausting. Why? Because you were up at night in regret and remorse and shame. You couldn't stop thinking about that one or two sins or the hurt that you had created on others or yourself. In other words, what the flesh leads or how the flesh leads is straight to unrest. No peace, no rest, running from God and somehow believing that that's the right way to run. No rest, just continuing to chug along. Some of you guys are right there right now. Absolutely exhausted by your shame. Completely tired and worn out. So, check this out. Here's how this gets unbelievable. Okay? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're running from God. But here's what the scripture says as it goes on the fruit of the Spirit. Here we go. Love, joy, peace, patience. Listen, when have you ever been? Unrested when your heart is overwhelmed with love? Overwhelmed by the love of God, overwhelmed by the love of others. When have you ever, like, stayed up at night worrying and in anxiety when your heart has been overwhelmed with love? How about faithfulness or kindness or gentleness? In other words, God says, through his son Jesus, I'm gonna baptize you in the Spirit. And what that Spirit is going to do is it is going to lead you into rest. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How? He'll give us rest through salvation and through the Spirit. Because what the Spirit does is it leads us into obedience. Freed, not under law, not burdened by trying to do the right thing, but freed to follow Christ. And so the fruits of the Spirit then, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things are guiding us into rest. Why? Because shame is gone. Remorse is gone. There's no like bite at a rear trying to say, oh, but what about that sin yesterday? Because the gospel reminds us it's as far as the east is from the west. We're forgiven. Do you guys see the power in this? I've only associated the spirit with fire. And now tonight, I'm associating not just the spirit with fire and with power, but I'm associating the spirit with rest. That walking and staying in step with the spirit. Here's what I've learned. That same exhaustion running from God, in the image of the prodigal son, I turn and run to him, only rest because he's steady he's there he's right there this text ends those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires crucified, gone the image that I have in my mind is right now This room, the Spirit of God, overwhelms us with rest. Those who are weary from running, those who are so burdened by shame and conviction, regret, remorse, that tonight the Spirit of God, by the power of God, for the glory of God, would remind you that you can repent tonight. Receive his grace. He's not gonna coddle you in your exemption clauses. He's gonna say, I forgive you and I love you and my arms of rest are here. They're still here. They haven't gone anywhere. What would it look like right now if the tired and the weary in this room all of a sudden in Christ experienced rest through the spirit? What if those who walked in here not knowing God at all, and kind of weirded out by the thought of the Holy Spirit invading their heart. You're like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I don't even know what's up and what's down. I'm so exhausted. And I'm telling you guys, there is only one place to find rest and that's it. There's, there's only one. You'll die exhausted. What if tonight in prayer, this whole place just became a place of repentance and confession. And receiving his grace. And all of us together resting in the sovereignty of God, believing that he's empowered us. So that's what I want to do. Let's stand together, okay? Come on. Uh, We're learning a lot um, on Friday mornings when we pray about the power of boldness in prayer. And so what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna guide us into a few subjects. I'm gonna put those subjects out there as together we pray. And maybe some of you out loud, to yourself, and your heart, whatever, or us together as a community, we're gonna pray. Maybe you haven't prayed in years or months or weeks. This is an opportunity just in your heart just to talk to the Lord. Okay? So let's spend some time right now first. Pleading that God would open our eyes to see what He's trying to tell us right now in this moment. Let's pray that. Come on.
1: Father, please show us, God. Open our eyes. Lord. Help us understand. Help us see, Lord. Help us know, God, that you're good, that you're real, that you're holy, Father. Please do that, Lord. We need you so much, Father. We welcome you.
0: In prayer, let's name the things that have become distractions, that have created the unrest in our heart. Let's confess these things right now. Confess them out louder in your heart. Let's plead these to the Lord. Come on. Let's, with a heart of gratitude, thank the Lord for being faithful to forgive us our sins. Come on, let's give him thanks for forgiveness and grace. Let's plead to the Lord for rest. Come on.
1: Cover us, God. Blanket us, God. Lead us by your spirit, Father. Overwhelm us, Father, with your love and your grace.
0: God, I pray that you would make in us people who stay in step with your spirit. God, help us turn and run to you. Help us, empower us, God, to stop running from you. God, help us see you as the source of life and love and grace and mercy. God, I pray all the pseudo-gospels or all the pseudo-distractions or, God, all the shiny things in our life, I pray, God, that we will see them for what they are. Unmask. God, all of those objects that have become for us desirable and God, please help us desire you and you alone, God. Purge all the rest. Focus us in on those things. Helm us in, God, and in that helm, Father, wrap us in your arms of rest and love. Blanket this room. Blanket this room, God. Help us believe and trust tonight.
1: That rest is only found in you.